Hello, charter folk. Very excited about today's chat. We have a terrific guest with us today, Kim Smith. As basically all charter folk know, Kim Smith needs no introduction in this world. She is as responsible for as many good things in our movement as anybody I know. Um, nearly 20 years ago, helped create the New School Venture Fund, which is among the most influential early organizations in the charter school movement, which became responsible for the support of many other new organizations that had huge impact. Uh, after founding New School Venture Fund, Kim then went on to found Pahara, which is another huge impact organization within the charter school movement and the education re reform movement broadly, um, helped us develop great new talent, helped us diversify our talent, helped us as a movement get more sensitive to the needs of the communities that we were serving. Uh, and about 18 months ago, Kim made a transition to um, her next phase in life, which I'm really curious to hear about. Um, but before we get to that, I'm going to just underscore my own personal gratitude uh, for everything that Kim has done. There are very few people who I have learned as much from, who I have found tone right um, and perceptive in setting after setting after setting. Um, there are very few people I'm as intimidated by to interview um, <laughs> as, as, as Kim Smith. So uh, I'm just really thrilled to have you with us this morning, uh, Kim. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, lots of things to dive into, but we can't, you know, skip over, you know, the lead, which is tell us, tell us about yourself and, you know, your latest transition and um, what you're thinking as you're getting further into this, what new perspective you might have, uh, given that you've had some time now to step back and look at things. We'd just love to, to hear what's latest for Kim. Yeah. Um, well, I suspect some of that will probably emerge in our conversation, but I was I think maybe the headline, I was watching some of your um, chats and in the Don Shalvey, Larry Rosenstock, two heroes of mine, I really appreciated Don's shelf life comment that he thought he had about a decade at these various uh, kind of focal points. And I felt that really resonated for me as an entrepreneur. Um, I look back across my career and feel like I pivot from a heavier focus on the people to a heavier focus on innovation. And I realized I sort of feel like the system to move forward, any system, needs people, ideas, and resources. And I think what I've learned is that at any point in time, two of them are coming together a little bit better, and there's a, the third needs more attention. And so with Pahara, I was really focusing on the people part. As you said, uh, we can talk more about this, but a lot having to do with um, the values and, and thinking about efficiency versus community and kind of where we were focusing our energies, greater diversity. Um, and I felt like I was getting a little bit away from the innovation piece of that equation. And so this this past period, I, I had a chance to have a, um, a transition to gain some new perspective, as you said. So I've been an entrepreneur in residence. I've been doing some consulting projects to kind of learn from a different lens about AI and virtual reality and a bunch of things that I hadn't been paying attention to. And I find that when you can pause and look at a context from an entirely different direction, that's when I think the new ideas kind of come together in some new ways. So that's really what I've been trying to focus on is what, where are we? Kind of a fresh perspective for me on where are we? And then what does that mean about what we need for moving forward into the next phase of the work? Well, I, I certainly valued greatly um, after leaving the California Charter School Association, having a chance to visit 25 states 
And if COVID hadn't hit, I would have made it to 35. Mm -hmm. um, and the people that I met, the patterns that I was able to recognize, mm -hmm. of course, one person's pattern recognition is another person's confirmation bias. You have to be careful here, right? But yeah, um, there is no doubt I was able to see some things that I hadn't previously been as focused on. Can you just share a couple of the things that you might be thinking anew, given that you've had a chance to have this perspective? You know, um, I think that one of the things, it's funny, but having the fresh perspective actually, I think has taken me back to really taking a look at first principles for why I was so excited about the charter school opportunity, what I believe about what's possible inside the current structures. And then I, I have to be honest, like this past year, I don't know if this is true for you, but COVID kind of shook everything up. So I had a set yeah. of observations I kind of was beginning to work with and then everything just like blew apart with COVID. But it was funny because in a way what happened during COVID, like I was saying, took me really back to the first principles partly observing trends and there's some great data, some good survey information is out there recently, but also as a parent, I have a 13 year old and a 14 year old and as probably happened to you during this past year, as a parent with friends who are parents, you became the go-to for a lot of people, you know, as they were trying to make decisions. And so I think the, this is going to sound obvious and I apologize because maybe much of what I'm going to say today is super obvious, but it was the parent piece that really came back so crystal clear for me. You um, you and I had talked about a little talk I did at Berkeley where I was kind of trying to figure out what I was seeing in parents. And at that talk, one of the things I was sharing was, um, it was a Maslow's hierarchy moment, right? Where we had bundled all these things together into this sense of school and what we wanted from school. And because of the context changing so radically, I feel like parents kind of unbundled what they wanted. And this will be a repeat for some people, but I but I was really struck by in our discussions, we almost always talk about academics, which makes total sense. It's a huge piece of what we do in schooling. But I was watching parents unbundle custodial care and safety, right? That my children are safe. Where are they and are they safe from the academics and the social and emotional development and mental health? And then the fourth piece was kind of enrichment, sports and music and other things that totally matter. And I was watching parents, myself included, uh, readjust the order of priority across those. And we can talk more about this as we get into things, but I would say for private school parents, most of whom went back pretty quickly, at least where I live, uh, mm -hmm. they got to kind of rebundle a little bit. Um, for public school parents, who at least in where I live did not go back and across the country, many did not, as you know, um, it was it was much harder to do that. And when they couldn't go back and they had to kind of consider each piece separately, I watched parents generally migrate to putting social and emotional development and mental health first, right? Especially mm -hmm. as they thought about how much Zoom can my kid take or like, what is it that I really need to have happening for my children? And so they reordered priorities with social and emotional development and mental health first, and relationships and enrichment sometimes second, just to like not be depressed, right? And then, and then academics still clearly really matter, right? So it was there, but the order of how parents were thinking about things really changed. And all that had been in our 
conversations before, right? The broader definition of student success that we've moved toward. You worked at High Tech High, which I think has done a really terrific job of making sure to be attentive to all that. But it it reached a new point, I think. And so the the my biggest takeaway, I think, from this past year is parent consciousness, by and large, is in a radically different place than it was before. And so the question I've been pondering a lot of many layers to this, but if there's one headline, it's what is it we need to do to make sure we don't lose that? Like, what do we need to do to be responsive to that parent consciousness? What do we need to do to rally parents to continue to be so engaged? They have a different sense of agency. They have a really different sense of what's possible. So many things that happened this past year, not just in education, but definitely in education are things that we all would have said were impossible before. Mm-hmm. And so we can go into more in depth in sort of the specifics of what I feel like we've seen with parents. But at the headline level, I would just say, that's a new game. That's just different. Yeah. We used to have to think about how do we get parents to lean in and and take that sort of agency because the system's so complicated. And and this year they just had to, and they did. And so I don't, yep. I don't think we're going back. Well, I th- I I've been describing this as, um, I mean, I've got my little figures and my red balls and my blue balls, you know, but the, the idea that um, we want an overlap between what public education offers and yeah. what parents want. And my contention has been slowly, incrementally, we've been seeing the overlap get smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have COVID hit and suddenly there's a question about, is there any overlap at all? Or how small has that overlap become? And then how postured is public education to to move its ball back so that the overlap gets where it needs to be? And I think in some parts of the country, you could make an argument that things have been freed up. I mean, I just, I saw today, the National Review is just declaring this the year of school choice, right? And, And then it lists all of the new laws that have been passed some of them are charter friendly, but others are voucher related or ESA related, whatever it may be. But then you have other parts of the country where people are clamping down and making it harder for public education to make any kind of change whatsoever. Um, and, you know, I guess I just ask you about about that as it relates to charter schools. You know, how how well postured do you think charter schools are um, to be able to do the new things that has now entered the parent consciousness you've just described? Well, I have been, I find it helpful sometimes when I come to situations like this to really go back to first principles and be clear on what's necessary and what's a nice to have. So I personally have been starting my questions before charter schools as a category. And so I go back to kind of well, why did we, why was I so excited about charter schools in the beginning? I don't know if you know this, but in high school and college, I worked with a consulting business that did school reform inside districts. So turnarounds and all kinds of efforts inside districts. So I'd had actually almost 20 years of working with districts before I started working, um, before we started Teach for America. And I, I saw some things there that didn't make sense to me in terms of, um, there was this sensibility that uh, sameness was equality, was equity. They wouldn't necessarily use all those words, right? But it was kind of like everyone had to do the same thing. And so part of what I was really excited about with charter schools was 
what I call diverse supply, but you can call it whatever you want, that there are different sets of learning environments with different culture, different characteristics, different values, different ways of approaching. And that in those different sets of schools, you internally had alignment and coherence. That was another piece I saw with districts. You had like teachers doing a million, you either had everyone doing the exact same thing or teachers doing whatever <laughs> they wanted with their classroom door closed. Like you had one of those two extremes. And in neither case were you freeing up and everyone does the same thing. You weren't freeing up educator energy, right? You weren't helping educators be successful. Like they thought they were, but they were just isolating people. So you couldn't learn, you couldn't collaborate. So that end didn't work. And the um, everyone, both ends just didn't work, right? There wasn't coherence. There wasn't alignment of the systems. So part of what I was really excited about with charter schools is, oh, we can have a lot of different kinds of learning environments. And within each one, we could have a coherent school design. So this kind of came on the heels of the New American Schools movement. They had mm -hmm. some interesting good school designs. They were early, they weren't incredibly innovative, but they were they had coherence. But over time, everything regressed to the mean and they weren't able to be successful in districts, right? So then we realized, oh, we have a governance problem. So the governance piece mattered to get everyone rowing in the same direction. Um, and I think we sometimes forget when we talk about choice, Choice fundamentally matters to people, but it matters to educators. They got to choose to be in that environment. Parents too, students obviously. And there's a, a sense of agency that comes with choice. And you know, we've had this dialogue in Pahara, you were a part of one of these around the opposite of effective choice is learned helplessness, right? There's this dynamic yeah. where as a human, you have to be able to demonstrate some agency in your life, in big choices, like what to do with your children for schools, which is a huge life choice but also as an educator, right? It, that's my job. I spend my time there. My, I invest my heart. I want it to be a place where I can be successful. So the diverse supply, the parent choice, the student choice, equity, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. I've heard you talk about this on the podcast, but when we, we dial back and think, parents have always had, and Don said this too, parents have always had the ability to make choice, but it was based on wealth. So we've always yeah. had wealthy parents able to move to new communities for a different school and to um, send their kids to private school. So that was there. And that was one of the biggest pieces of the charter school legislation was every parent deserves the power to make that choice, not just based on wealth. So that was huge. And of course that brought the lottery as a way to make sure we were um, having this diverse supply in a way that brought more equity. So it wasn't a selectivity issue like private schools. Um, so all that stuff, for me are the first principles of kind of why, right? It wasn't one size fits all. Parents could lean into their agency. Students could have a voice, particularly at the later ages. Um, and we could then design collaboratively with educators and parents systems to support those schools, right? So I feel like over time, a lot of things went really well across all those fronts. The one, I, the one or two that I think we had the most trouble with is um, we, when we originally at New School started investing, we had High Tech High and Aspire and Achievement First, and we had, a, I think, a broad array of diversity. And over time, as you know, uh, things moved toward more of an efficiency play. It was more about efficient management, mm -hmm. which does matter, but that's not enough. That's not enough. That's not enough innovation. It's not enough um, opportunity to learn, right? The, the other piece I loved about charters, and this is playing out, I think, to your point about this past year, because everyone's rowing in the same direction, because governance is aligned with management, is aligned with educators and parents and families, um, it creates a nimbleness, 
it creates the ability to learn. So one of the most important things I think about charter schools as a kind of structural entity is they can become learning organizations. They can have a hypothesis about what will make something better, design solutions, try them out, learn from that and be in that learning loop. That's virtually impossible in districts because of how broken governance is. So I don't think governance is the only answer. It's sort of necessary, but not sufficient, right? And so as I think about this past year, I do feel like we saw a lot of charter systems be way more nimble than districts. Um, it, where you see epic fails generally, like just not doing anything and children not having any opportunity to learn, that's almost always in the districts, right? So yep. there's a, a variety of responses amongst private schools, a variety of responses amongst charters, but the places that really blew it, districts, like categorically and in so yep. many places. And you see, you've pointed this out too, the district leadership has finally had to admit that. We've seen so many good people who've tried so hard in districts to make these kinds of decisions, to, to pivot, to do what's right for kids, leave because they just couldn't get that done. So I feel like that means, so we've seen the nimbleness, we've seen the pivot, we've seen parents lean in. So there's a sensibility change that I think makes sense. I guess the last piece I would say is there's, some of the charter systems that are most we think of as innovative but and by that i mean the set of educators and schools who've been focused on student agency um on competency-based on like parents also parents have made it, it became clear to parents this year that seat time was not the point now maybe Absolutely. if you pulled them before they would have agreed with that intellectually but now they really mm -hmm. get it right they've like they watch right. they've seen it so what do we do with that? And so I feel like mm -hmm. there's two pieces. One is um, how do we not lose this moment of parent consciousness? How do we use it to pivot into innovation? I thought your conversation with Darrell and Diane Tavener and Pat Brantley was really amazing in this regard. And I just remember Pat talking about you know, using Amazon Fresh. She's like, here's what I do in my life and here's what we're trying to do yeah. in our school. And students deserve that same opportunity, right? To, uh, for us to retool the systems, to have agency, to have choice, to be able to make decisions. Um, but that's gonna require, I think really totally rethinking system of schooling. So there's this like yeah. uh, innovation agenda, right? And for me, at least, I, I feel like, I don't know, there's like two different layers of your charter question for me. One is, what is it we need to do so that charter schools that have the benefit of aligned governance can really maximize this opportunity to innovate? So that's one set. How yep. do we help the charters who are out there innovate? Because that's a big, yep. that's a big challenge. And yep. the second layer is setting aside the title charter school for a second, given the way parent consciousness has evolved and we're clear that what we're delivering is not good enough and the districts are so broken from a governance standpoint, what's the path forward to make more parent choice with innovation, like all those first principles, how do we get more of that? And yeah. I'm not sure, to be honest, if I'm open to the answer being XYZ for charter schools, because I yeah. love charter schools, I feel like they're powerful as a tool to get parents and communities what they want and need, but maybe, I, I'm starting to wonder if it might be vouchers, to be honest. And I'm not, I have never been a huge voucher fan. I don't think it's a simple 
fix all. I'm a lifelong mm -hmm. Democrat. My parents are both public school educators. So there were lots of reasons that was not at the top okay. of my list, but um, I am just watching in many states. I live in California. So that's one of the prime examples. Uh, the respect for parents and the respect for charters as a tool that gives parents more power has been so destroyed, yep. carved back, whatever you want to call it, that I, I have found myself saying, okay, well, parents have gotten used to, we, we've seen this year, parents and families getting checks from the government as yep. a phenomenon, right? Which they weren't yep. used to before, not necessarily for schooling, but right. And in some places yep. now for schooling. So you get a check from the government. I see that hmm, wasn't something I thought was possible, but now I do. I've, I've had to make decisions about my kids. Are they in a micro school? Are they in a pod? Yep. What have I had to do to step in to take agency and make decisions? I've realized I care about social and emotional development. I care about a much broader definition of success for my child than just academics. Also academics, bigger, yep. right? But more. Yep. That's the soup. That's what we're swimming in. And so yep. I sort of naturally bifurcate that into, okay, well, then the charters we have have to figure out how to address the SEL stuff better, the competencies, yep. the not being seat time bound, mixed age. Like there's all kinds of true innovation that we need to do there. Right. We have some great exemplars, Summit being a great example, but but many others, right? Big picture, citizens of the world. We have some folks who've been doing those component parts. Yep. What is it we need to do collectively to learn from them and to make tools and resources available for that redesign in the schools we have? And then the second question, what do we do to get more parent choice in places where it's under attack? So I agree with all that. Sounds really good. The thing that I'm focused on and worried about is whether or not, at least within some of these blue state contexts, charter schools are going to have the the regulatory freedom to do the new things that that parents want. And I don't think it's it's possible to make a blanket statement about the entire nation. I think that uh, there's a lot of variation by state, by political yeah. context. But in yeah. certain places, right now, California, Illinois, um, you name the blue state, um, New York, the challenges coming against charter schools are going to probably constrict uh, even further charter schools ability to uh, to innovate like we're talking about. So um, it seems to me as though we have to have a, a two-pronged approach here. One is to just double down and, and push as hard as we possibly can, make the moral argument for charter schools, having the flexibility to, to do these things that parents want. And to the extent that our, our policymakers simply won't give that to us, we have got to be able to support other means by which this innovation can happen. And if that's vouchers, well, how do we then design our voucher programs so that going back to first principles, if what we're after is greatly more public education for all, I think an argument can be made that certain voucher programs are greatly more public than the discriminatory so-called public school down the block, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would we support those voucher programs to, uh, in fact, reflect, reflect our first principles that you're talking about? Yeah, I think it's important. I so I agree with you. It's a state by state question. And I think it's important to think at a systems level of the different mechanisms. So um, in the blue states, I think means tested vouchers could be powerful. Obviously, you then have to also invest in helping people get more supply started, right? We've learned that you can't just assume great schools will mm -hmm. emerge. Um, 
I do think about what are the mechanisms that have created the playing field the way it is and where are there opportunities for us to change those things in a way that aren't about charters per se, but could help enable parent choice and the diversity of supply we're talking about. And so some of the questions I've been thinking about are um, school catchment areas, right? Residential school um, boundary areas are ridiculous. Yeah. Like they're sort of like, you said this once before, it's kind of redlining, right? Within schools. And in fact, they were often based on redline, literal redlining, right? Uh, historically. And I think about some, like in my own district, we have a superintendent who deeply believes she's about equity. She's actually about uniformity and sameness and she's defending school boundaries, right? Which is not in any way about equity because then that means if you are wealthy enough to buy into the best school, you get to go there and other people cannot transfer in. So I'm that kind of breaks my head. How is it we've let the equity argument be in defense of geographically based, often red line based school boundary areas? So like that's one question I think we could think about in terms of technical shifts that might have wide effects, which would be very hard to do. But we, I think part of part of the challenge in front of us is to pick a few fronts to really work on. Because mm -hmm. that was my takeaway from the Trump era. They won so many things because they created an environment where so much was happening that anyone who wanted to play defense was like overwhelmed because you were like, there's 20 different things going on here. Which one do I fight back against? And if we allow ourselves to be that disparate and try to do everything, we're not going to be effective. So we're, I think we're in the process of narrowing down to say, what are the couple fronts that we can say will increase on the first principles level, the parent choice, mm -hmm. the parent power, the diversity. So one might have something to do around regulations around school boundary areas. Another could be vouchers, as you said. Another one, a different flavor sort of in the voucher direction is um, money follows the kids wherever right. it goes, which could be like yep. an internal inside the district change. The other thing uh, you and I've had some conversations about, which I think could make sense in California. I'm, I'm not sure if it makes sense in some of the other states is um, the county boards of it or in New York, the BOCES. Like there is a layer of the education system that is not a self-protecting monopoly. Yep. How do we better leverage that set of educators who care very much for young people as well and are not in the systemic uh, governance yeah. dilemma, paradox that a district is in to what if the money follows the kid and every school becomes a performance-based contract school? Like, yep. So there's a branding question. Do we have to let go of charter schools and call it something else? I'm pretty sure everyone in our movement would be fine with that if it led to the right outcome. So there's yep. a piece of this that's about communication, but there's also a piece that's about what really can happen on the ground. Is it really gonna yep. give educators and parents the ability to work together in autonomy, a diverse supply? But there is, I think, yeah. momentum around money follows the kids. Like it's very hard yep. to make an equity-based argument against money follows the kids, right? Yep. I think having a compelling North Star, you're almost talking about end state type stuff. What what are we going going toward? Yeah. And that that's certainly the thing that <clears throat> most sobered me in my visits to 25 states, this sense that no one had that North Star, mm. or very few mm. people did. Or yeah. even even more concerning, there were some people that had North Stars and they said, but I'm not even gonna say what the, what it is, because I think in the articulation <laughs> of the North Star, all I'm gonna do is make it worse for us. So shut up about mm. what we're really trying to do, right? And to me, that reflected a lack of confidence in in that we can carry the North Star message. Why would mm -hmm. we have that lack of confidence? 
if we are on the right side of history, erasing redlining, why would we feel anything other than full throatedness about our North Star, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I keep, I keep, you know, encouraging us to come back to what is that end state that we are, we are going toward, and um, each state is going to be different. But I, I think when you can, when you can articulate within a state, this is where we're going long term. Charter schools are going to grow. We want all district schools to evolve to become very much similar to charter schools and to have an authorizer at a county or something like that, uh, that can hold them as accountable as they hold us. Um, well, mm -hmm. we then are able to present that we're not advocating for two separate systems and all this kind of stuff. We actually have an end state where yes, things are unified, but the overall paradigm within which public education operates is a much healthier one and reflects our values much more. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, um... So if we pause and kind of look back and say, what is it? Many, many things I think all of us in the charter school world did well, particularly being focused on parents and communities and students and not, not pretending one size fits all. There are many things we did well. A few of the things we did not do well, uh, one is what you're saying. We didn't paint a picture of an end state that resonated for most people. We tended to tell the story of our why based on technical mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Like governance, chargers are essentially an innovation in governance. It's a technical mechanism. But what it enabled was um, a shift in values, right? What we, what we appreciate when we see it going well is parents are engaged and welcomed. Students feel like they're in a school culture that works for them. Educators feel like they're in a school culture and a system that's working for and supporting them. Like that alignment, that coherence, there's something really beautiful, and you know this about a school that's thriving. It's like a, it's like an organic being, right? Like the metaphor is more like a garden than an engineering right. metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. And so our metaphors for change should be ecosystem building rather than I don't know software development, right? We didn't right. get that right. We didn't come out with the right messaging, and sometimes messaging part. Of what I was thinking about as you were talking, Jed, had to do with framing, right? Like the mm -hmm. exact same mechanism framed as doing away with redlining versus framed as whatever, taking students away from school districts or, you know what I mean? Like right. we lost the framing. We lost the framing right. battle for sure. So the unions, which are, you know, a freestanding political entity doing a great job of their business, representing adults, uh, did a great job of framing and we did not. Right. So I don't think the unions are the entire problem, but can, I do think I also, they are a very powerful can just, messenger. Can, can I insert there though, Kim? I also think many of us, myself included, being one of the knuckleheads, didn't try. We didn't even think it was our job, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we thought, hey, what we need to do is get incremental policy wins, get the authorizer that we need, get the facility fund that we need, you know, let's get funding equity. Oh, this, yeah. this macro stuff, what we're trying to do, don't even bother, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. the other side, they chose that as their game and they hammered away, right? And yeah, so I mean, I this thought, is a big piece of why we, uh, this is a big piece of why I started Pahara to ask folks, not not just charter, but heavy emphasis on charter folks. Um, what do we need to do differently? Like we were not trying to connect with resonate with, I mean, we were inside school buildings and in our enterprises, but not at this level, not at the messaging level with communities and families. It takes me back. One of the pieces we read in Pahara has to do with the pivot moment in the gay rights movement 
where there was a decision made to begin to focus on gay marriage, which is not necessarily the most important thing, but it was a it was an area for possible progress that resonated for communities they had not been in allyship with before because it was about love, it was about in the Christian community, it was about families, right? As opposed to a technical fix around other pieces of the agenda for gay rights, all of which also matter, right? But there was a recognition, the way we're going about this is not working. We're talking about rights, we're talking yeah. about technical things. We are not, we're not bringing people in, we're not winning hearts and minds. And this isn't just a strategic question. I mean, it is a strategic question, but it is also more about like the, depth and the heart and the purpose of what we're doing. Like it's real in both cases, both the gay marriage and with charter schooling, there is heart, there is a reason, a why, a purpose that's deep. You you lose something, not just politically, but substantively when you don't focus on that. So I agree with you. We had this like wonky technical set of behaviors and activities which mattered. We just were missing the bigger framing that could have brought more people with us. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we talked about that that article um, many times at Pahara, and um, I never brought up what I'm going to bring up right now because my my context, my paradigm wasn't the same. What I realize about gay marriage is so genius is it's a specific policy proposal that you can fight for, right? Yeah. But it reflects so many values and it has all these ancillary benefits, right? Yeah. For us, and and that is it's the policy proposal, what you were advocating for, that ultimately is the spine that allows you to drive a new narrative. And generally, our policy proposals have been these small ball incremental things, nothing that you can drive a narrative on. Meanwhile, the other side, when they're attacking us, you know, they basically are able to present us as a billionaire plot trying to, you know, um, privatize public education, right? Mm -hmm. If we, if we were strategic, and, and you know, deeply principled and, and connected to our values. It seems to me as though we should be able to come up with specific policy proposals, i.e. let's go after red lines, i.e. let's go after a funding um, system that subsidizes um, affluent kids' education and sucks money away from, you know, lower kids, what a, a lower income kids, right? Um, if we chose the right ones and, and built our entire narrative around that, um, I think we have a chance, Kim, to, do much better than we did in the last decade when the other side clearly got a lot of traction in their attacks against us with the with the meta narrative. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess I would say a couple caveats to that. One is um, yes, because we now have a think deeply understood understanding that we must be doing this engaged with parents and communities and that there's a piece of this that's about organizing not just not just mobilizing people to the mm -hmm. state capital that matters but true organizing which is a deep conversation about what do you want for your children your community and i do think there is actually a total alignment about what you're saying technically and what communities want which is not having redlining and having equitable distribution of quality and having the money follow the kids like i do think through that real organizing i do believe based on what i'm seeing that we can land on a set of uh, technical uh, proposals that are also deeply embedded and aligned in communities, but we have to take the time to go about it that way. So then that's also a difference from how we did it before. Um, and the second piece I would bring in, which is unfortunately a complication, <laughs> is so let's say it's do away with red line, money follows the kid, 
some structure about uh, all schools having a performance contract or something. Like, I don't know what the right combination is, but that's a decent yep. hypothesis for a couple of them, right? And parents, you know, thereby get their choice because of the money following the kid. 58% of parents who were surveyed recently in the uh, Beacon survey that I saw want, think this is a moment to tackle bold change. Bold mm -hmm. was the word they used. Yep. And, you know, we can we need to unpackage that with parents and families and communities. But my sense from the patterns I've seen is they do mean things like better integrated social and emotional learning, a much broader definition of success for life success. College matters, but life matters more than that. And jobs and providing for your family. So how do we do both these things at the same time where we integrate a sense of framing for the first principles around equity and doing away with redlining and the money follows the kid. So those are sort of technical things that give us the room to innovate. And yep. then also the innovation. And yep. how do we think about that change process in a way that's embedded in communities? It's a part of why I'm excited about the way Transcend has been approaching their innovation work in collaboration mm -hmm. with communities. It's a part of why I was so excited you had Diane Tabiner from Summit and Pat Brantley from Friendship and others who have been in this last year and before innovating in the model. Like I, I think I think we have the puzzle pieces. We have, I think of it almost like foundational bricks to sort of put underneath this building we're talking about building. We have the foundational bricks, but they're not pulled together yet. And yeah. so what's the right process to pull them together to then build upon in these different states? Um, because we'll miss a hugely important opportunity if we just focus on the underlying mechanisms and not the innovation. And conversely, if we just focus on innovation and we don't change those underlying pieces, it'll fall apart. So we yep. have to figure out how to do both those things at once. Yeah, the underlying conditions, maybe another way to, to think about it is underlying conditions is not gonna be something that we can change overnight. We may be able to change them faster than we've been thinking. We may be able to do them, maybe we can attack some of these things within five to 10 years. but. The things that parents are demanding is not something that's five or 10 years from now. We're talking about five days from now or five yeah. weeks from now as people are thinking yeah. about their enrollment. And yeah. something that you said um, when we were preparing for this that I you know, keep coming back to in my mind is if, let's say resources were there to do something new and big, um, wh within which, co which context would you do it? Where do you think you know we have the the flexibility needed, the potential needed to really help, you know, a large number of kids to really innovate the new model. Would it be within a charter school context or would it be within a private school context or something like that? Me um, personally, you, you mean? You brought you brought the topic up. You know, um, I, I know I have been pres uh, approached by a, a funder in, in a, I won't even re uh, reveal the, the area, right? But somebody that wants to do something very interesting, very exciting, which is, more like almost like taking a soccer league, you know, and evolving a soccer league into a full on school, right? And where you have these mm -hmm. multi age teams that are really almost like squads led by different people who start to compete with each other, and how you infuse into that really um, high, you know, academic expectations and all of that. And he's like, how can I do this as a charter? And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. But a lot of the things that <laughs> that you were talking about, about parent agency and social emotional, all those kinds of things are deeply embedded in what this person wants to do. But mm -hmm. trying Purpose. to get a charter approved that allows you to do that? I don't know, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? 
Uh, I'm pretty clear. If you said to me, which path would you walk on now to create innovation? It would be a private school. I would try to create some sort of affordable private school system. Where I see innovation happening, there are there are incredible leaders making innovation happen in charter schools. Diane Tavener is a great example and her team at Summit. Um, but by and large, we've made it almost impossible. And so if I were setting out to do innovation as the core lens, I would definitely work in the private school area. And I have to tell you that that's, that makes me incredibly sad. I've been, I went yeah. to public schools. I've been a public school person my whole life, but just, I have, you gotta be realistic. If that's what you want innovation, and that's where I'm seeing the most innovation, to be honest, right? So it's been, it was interesting because there was a moment in innovation where there was this sense of um, distrust coming from communities of color and low-income communities of color of a kind of don't experiment on my children, right? Because of historical legitimate mm -hmm. reasons to be worried about that. Yeah. At the very same moment, we were seeing the con school and um, alt school and these things emerge that were like really experimental. And it was privileged parents, parents of wealth were sending their kids there because at work, those parents were seeing AI is coming and robotics and automation is coming and it's gonna replace more than half the jobs we think of as you know solid good jobs right now. So they were very clear, they wanted their kids to develop um, the ability to be novel problem solvers, to be creative. You know, this Daniel Pink's work in a whole new mind, like the stuff that is essentially human, that's hardest to replace, right? Creativity, mm -hmm. relational stuff. So the wealthy parents were seeing that as an opportunity. They understood there was some risk that you might have some speed bumps, the quality might not be everything you want, you know, the stuff to be figured out, but they were willing to take that risk. The messaging for communities, low-income communities and communities of color they they weren't necessarily seeing that same horizon and they their risk assessment was different and and people were not doing a good job circling back around to say i mean there are a few exceptions i'd say innovate and a couple other groups are i think doing a good job engaging in that conversation but there is distrust legitimate distrust that has to be overcome so there's that piece around parents right and and innovation but but even more, the problem is the accountability system we've set up in public schooling has just gotten too rigid and too narrow. So, I mean, one of my favorite moments in your conversation with Diane Tavner and um, Pat and Darrell, a key issue we have to work out and we just need to bring the groups together and, and hash this out was Darrell was basically saying, tests matter because it helps us with accountability to show we have an achievement gap, to show yeah. we have inequity. And Diane was saying, we need to not have tests because we have to innovate and they're not serving us. There's a the third way answer to that is information and data matter, but they do not have to be the old tests. That's where I think our equity organizations that have done such a great job getting accountability for equity on the table used old technology in the old standardized test. So that's fine. Yeah. That's what they had available. It's just not good enough anymore. So yeah. we have to get both those groups, the innovation groups and the equity groups together. And, and this is a thing that's gonna take intentionality. What I've watched over the last few years is the equity groups, groups super focused on racial diversity, racial representation, and the innovation groups have like separated where you have a mm -hmm. lot more white folks and a lot more people of privilege in the innovation camp, and you have a lot more racial diversity in the diversity and equity camp. Each group cares very much about the other, but they put the issue second. So it's like innovation first, equity second. Both matter, but like a teeny hmm. bit behind. 
equity and racial representation first, innovation matters, but their their priorities are slightly different. They can be almost exactly, like the circles oh, yeah. are almost aligned, right? They're that. just a teeny bit different in a lot of cases, but they've spread apart because of the systems and the organizations and stupid things like at events, the innovation session and the racial equity session will run at the same time. The dumb things right. like that, where we have to yeah. be much more intentional to say, these have to get better combined. I thought Pat was a great advocate in that respect. We we do have Mache Ashton School in DC. We have a lot of folks who are a lot, but not enough, who are intentionally combining those things. That should be something we take very seriously, making sure yeah. we are explicitly combining competency-based ed, all the like innovation pieces, SEL with um, equity and racial diversity, like bring those two camps together uh, intentionally, which then raises another question we've talked about at various times, which is, is this the time to really broaden the tent? We had, because of our agenda around equity, more and more and more and more narrow focus on the children who are least served, which on the yeah. one hand is incredibly important because in fact, those kids are the least served and they, they do deserve a fair shot at life and getting the skills they need. So we all agree to that. But politically, is this the moment now that all parents have gotten clear, all public school parents at least, um, what's not working? Is this the moment yeah. to really broaden that tent? Can you do that and keep an emphasis on equity? Again, maybe it goes back to figuring out the framing and those North Stars around the money follows the kid. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I have the answer, but I do think these are the areas we have to bring people together across silos and across perspectives to figure out a path yeah. forward. Well, just coming back to the, just the imperatives about the different contexts, and I know we're I've got you for another five minutes or so, maybe a question or two. Um, yeah. I wanna choose the questions, you know, carefully here. I, I just, I do think though that I find it sobering that we present to Kim Smith and even the way I think about things, hey, somebody wants to do something very innovative. Do you do it within the charter school space? Probably not. You do it in the, in the private school space. Um, by the way, long... you don't do it in the district space either. So let's just not leave oh, that yeah, unsaid. Of course. Well, that's, yeah. uh, it's never going to happen. I know. Yet. I'm just saying. Yeah. I just think about, you know, High Tech High's um, history. And I mean, its first charter, I think it was, I think it literally was 14 pages, literally. <laughs> and there was big font. Yeah. And, um, and 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 the stories about the chaos, you know, in the first uh, in the first semester, you know, when when they everybody had all these crazy ideas, and then you know Ben Daly, goodness love him, you know, he came in and said, okay, we're going to put at least some structure on this thing, and it was at the end of that first semester that they really figured it out, right, how they were going to do um, the the overall structure for the program. But if they hadn't been given as much flexibility as they had in that first semester, they never would have gotten there, right, mm -hmm. and so. You know, we have to find a way where either the chartering space is going to become hospitable to that level of innovation again, or it is not going to be a primary driver uh, of, of what we need education to be. And um, my own sense is that the talent that we have within the, the charter school space, charter folk, um, is the most, um, you know, uh, creative force we have in public education today. And so 
it would be a major, major loss if we didn't have those people freed up to be able to do what we want. So I'm gonna keep pushing as hard as we possibly can. I also think that we have some infrastructure in place now that we didn't have in the beginning of the movement. Like we didn't have any authorizers, right? And so you give mm -hmm. you give excess freedom and you have problems and all that kind of stuff. Well, oh, let's start put, heaping new regulation on. It seems to me as though being more mature, we should be able to come forward with proposals now about how greater innovation should be allowed within you know, the, the charter school space. What, what would you say to charter folk at this point, uh, Kim, especially maybe some charter folk in, I mean, whatever, charter folk everywhere. We got, we got a really great representation here at charter folk across the entire country, but especially even in red states, a lot of them are in blue cities, you know, where they feel the attack. What do you mm -hmm. say to charter folk about right now, what they can do both within the organization and for the space so that we can make as big a contribution as is needed, you know, in this in this critical moment. Man, that's a hard question. I feel like we collectively have allowed our charter school leaders to be put in a spot where they have to spend so much of their time and energy playing defense that they they can't do what you're asking them to do in terms of innovation in many cases. So this year, because everything changed radically, they were then freed up to do a lot of things differently and a lot of them were nimble. So I guess I would say, get really clear with your parents why the ability to be nimble and do things differently mattered and think about organizing more broadly with parents who want that continued um, responsiveness, right? Like one issue would be the hybrid schools, which are now states mm -hmm. are making illegal or whatever. That's ridiculous, right? It's a method. It's a methodology for reaching parents. So why is that going away? So bring in more people. This goes to that expanded tent. Bring in more parents and people on the fundamental first principles of being responsive to parents and kids and communities. Um, but I, But I guess to me, the question, I think we should be asking is how do we, how do the rest of us rethink and reorganize and put a lot more resources into creating the political context where those folks can thrive and innovate? They need different tools, right? They need to be able to do things differently. Like they, we can't ask every single educator out there who's running a school to be the engine of innovation at the same time. Like that's not how industry does it either. Like they have skunk work, they create tools, then they come back with the tools and everyone's like, oh, that's great. I could do it that way. So I feel like we're loading too much on those charter folks. Great when they can do all those things, which some of them can. Yay. So then it's on the rest yep. of us to say, pull out the lessons from that, make it widely available. Um, but also, so I think in some respects, my challenge would be to philanthropy, to think differently and start writing much bigger checks to enable a, an innovation ecosystem at the same time so that we can continue to have innovative tools and systems and talent, rethink time, like all those things that need to be done differently. We can't pack all that on the backs of the school operators, like where they've yeah. been able to do that because they're exceptional, great. Let's take the lessons from that. And then we have to change the ecosystem so that people can thrive. Yeah. And I think you and I are aligned on this. Then I'm it'd be great if we make that available to everyone, not just charter yep. people. But the reality is because of the 
flexibility and freedoms we need to maintain for our charter folk, they will probably be able to adopt them better, faster, more nimbly, right? That's our yep. hope. But yep. it's on us to make that possible. So um, I wish I had a simple, more crisp answer to your question, but this is that moment where um, we have to break through to the other side yep. on framing and on the why and not have it just be charters for its own sake. Like it has to go back to those first principles of parents deserve the right to choose. Parents deserve diverse options. Kids deserve to deserve diverse options. Educators yep. deserve diverse options that work for them. Like that's just fundamental. Redlining is wrong. Why are we allowing yep. that to happen? The money needs to follow the kids. So I'm not a marketer and none of us in the charter world should be working on the messaging exactly because that's not our forte. We're too technical and wonky, but yep. that matters. We have to frame this in a way that matters and really acknowledges where it's coming from in communities. So the yep. there is a technical piece to how we do it, but the why has to come from parents and kids and educators. And I think it really does. If you look at this past year, we just have to connect to that in powerful and authentic ways. And I think that's gonna require some different philanthropic investments and a bunch of great talent that's out there putting yep. their time and attention to, to those connection points, to bridging, to connecting those pieces, to connecting innovation and diversity, to connecting the framing and the operations and landing on a set of, um, framing messages that matter for the moment with, like you said, a couple crisp um, technical pieces behind it. Yeah. Well, connecting and bridging, um, I think are two words I would use to describe Kim Smith over and over again uh, for what you've done for our movement. And I think, you know, what you're doing today in terms of helping us think about, you know, next, next steps. Um, we're wrapping up here. What, any last thought you would want to share with, you know, the, the viewers today um, that you've been thinking about or any any last ideas? I guess the, the thing I've been thinking about recently is way back at the beginning when we first started new schools and I was thinking about what makes for an entrepreneurial mindset, I took a look at the study coming out of Harvard, which said essentially they posed a question um, to young people, can you drive if you're uh, paraplegic? And the kid said, no, of course not. And then they framed the question, how can you drive if you're a paraplegic? And they said, oh, well, we could you know, have hand controls and we could do all these different things. And I keep coming back to that. I think sometimes we ask, can we do something when we have to be asking, how can we do it? And then for the how, the next layer of that realization from our conversation today is that how has to be figured out in a, in a diverse um, stakeholder group so that then that how um, gets framed in a way that really resonates for the hearts and minds of everybody involved in the system instead of framed in a technical way. Um, and I think we have the building blocks to do this well. We just, um, this is our moment. We have to seize this moment. Well, I will be very excited to see how you seize it. Um, and you know that if there's anything I personally can do to uh, help you in any way, um, you know, anytime, Kim, you've, you've got me available. Um, 
I uh, really appreciate you spending the time with us. And I hope I can come back and, you know, get you for the next, you'll, you'll be my first, you know, two time, uh, well, no, Daryl actually did too, didn't he, right? You'll follow in Daryl's Yeah, Darrell, steps, Darrell's right? been, I would say the next time though, we got to have like a multi-group thing because I was jealous when I saw the Darrell, Diane, Pat <laughs> conversation. That was awesome. So yeah, sounds fun. Well, I'll look forward to it, but hey, thank you so much. Um, thank really you for all you're doing. Again. Okay, take care, Kim. Take care, bye. Bye-bye.